Now, this might be difficult to do this time of year, but I want you to imagine for a moment that it's 105 degrees outside and you're walking out in a pasture and you happen to see uh, this, this cow trough, uh, a water trough that's, that's not been used for a long time, but a rain came a few weeks back and so it's, it's filled with water. But after several weeks, this water is stagnated. And as you're walking, you can smell that stagnated water you can smell it a great distance away. And so you walk up and you look at that, at that water trough and what you see is just all kinds of grunge and yuckiness. That water trough needs to be poured out, needs to be cleaned up, needs some fresh water if it's actually going to be used and, and have a purpose. But I wonder sometimes if our lives spiritually don't become a little bit like that water trough, just sort of stagnant. We're not really putting a lot of effort into our faith. And eventually, if we just put the cards on the table, spiritually, our lives can begin to stink. They're not what God intended for them to be. Well, this morning's passage is going to lead us uh, and stir our hearts toward a fresh faith, a faith that is alive, a faith that's growing. We're going to be in the book of Philippians as we begin a new series through Philippians a series called The Pursuit of Joy. The reason is that that's a dominant theme throughout the book of Philippians, uh, to have joy in the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi to encourage them along in the Christian faith. What's interesting is that Paul was in prison when he wrote this book of joy. Let's look together at Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you. With the affection of Christ Jesus, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior And may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here Paul is teaching that the gospel transforms every dimension of life. The gospel transforms every dimension of life. And our text gives three ways that the gospel transforms. First, the gospel transforms you by placing you in a gospel community. It transforms by placing you in a gospel community. Look in verse 1. Paul is writing here with Timothy, a, a young man in the faith that he had discipled. So Timothy concurs or agrees with what Paul has to say in, in this letter. They are servants of Christ. Or you could say they, uh, this word could also be translated slave. And They are slaves of Christ. They're committed to him. They belong to him. He owns them, and they are committed to to service to him. But notice who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. 
Now, who are the saints? Are they the people in the church who are like super spiritual? You know, the, the, uh, the guys who are just, they're right there. Everyone can say, this guy, it's, it's him or it's her. Actually, in the New Testament, saints simply refers to those people who know Jesus. As Paul says here, who are in Christ. People who have a relationship with Jesus, who have put their faith in him. So this is written to the church at Philippi, and we kind of get here in Philippians 1, verse 1, a sense of what church structure should look like. Those people who are a part of the church, who are members of the church, ought to be in Christ. That is, they should be saved. So that the church is composed, that is, the actual membership of the church, is composed of people who know Jesus, who who genuinely know him. Others, of course, are welcome to come, but the actual membership of the church are people who are saints in Christ, those who are saved. And we get an idea of, of who the leadership of the church is. They're, they're, he's writing to the overseers of the church at Philippi. This is a, if you look in the New Testament, you'll see that this is a synonym with the word pastor or elder. So here, there's a group of overseers or pastors or elders who provide oversight for the congregation and spiritual leadership for the congregation and deacons. And deacons are meant to provide acts of service. Their, their ministry is to, to work in physical acts of service. Now, why is all of this important? Because the context of the New Testament, we see it here in the opening verses of Philippians, is that believers are going to be in a gospel community. That every person who knows Jesus is going to be a part of a family of faith. And that's what the scriptures teach. That's what you see over and over in the New Testament. And look in verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace. The order of the words here is really important. Because to know the peace that God brings, one first has to know the grace of God. In other words, for me to know God's peace, I actually have to have been saved. I have to have experienced God's grace. And so when I know God and I have turned from my sin and put my faith in him, then I can, I can know his peace. Now, as you think of these opening verses, it's clear that God's intent is that a person is saved and that a person is with other believers in a community. I read an article uh, about scientists who were experimenting to examine or to consider the socialization of ants. This is kind of, kind of interesting, one of those things you're like, I probably would be all right with not knowing this, but maybe it's a little interesting to know it. So these scientists took ants and they took a container and they provided the same source of nutrition in each container, each of the containers. And in some of the containers, they put one ant. And in other containers, they put 10 ants. And what they found is that the ants that were alone had a two to three times higher death rate. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Well, what we see here, that a solitary ant isn't going to fare too well. Well, as believers, if we try to remove ourselves from a faith family, from a fellowship, we're not going to fare well. You see, the gospel is meant to be lived out in the context of, of, a, of a church family where, where, where there are other people to, to spur us on and to, to help us and, and other folks that, that we can help. Now, I get that being a part of a church can sometimes be difficult. I mean, we're all sinners. We're all in process. And so when you're in church... Sometimes people are mean or sometimes people are ugly. Sometimes people say something they shouldn't say, do something they shouldn't do. That's reality because this human flesh, this side of heaven is sinful. 
And so sometimes folks will go, church is such a mess. There's no way I'm going to be a part of that. Brothers and sisters, do you not see that it's sometimes those messes, even though we don't like it, that God uses to stir the water of our hearts, that God uses to keep us from stagnating? It's sometimes those challenges that help us be sanctified, that help us become more like Jesus. So yeah, there are some difficulties in church sometimes, but what we see is that God uses all those things, even the tough parts of church, although there are a lot of good things about church, tons and tons of good things, far outweigh the bad, but he uses all of it, the good and the bad, to help us grow and be transformed in our relationship with him. So let's think about this. In in our own lives, have you intentionally placed yourself in a church, in a gospel community? You see, the local church is God's plan for furthering the gospel. Have you you placed your life in a local church, a a church that's Bible-believing, that's committed to the Word of God? And have you begun to invest your life there? Not just kind of hang out, but actually every now and then, but actually begin to invest your life. That's God's plan for, for each of us. Not that we would be alone but that we would be a part of a community. Also, as we think about these opening verses of Philippians, we need to ask this question. Have I experienced the grace of God that brings peace? Have I experienced his grace? You see, to, to experience the grace of, of God, you have, to, you have to recognize that God sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, lived a perfect life, didn't do anything wrong. And he was nailed to the tree and he suffered and died on that cross for our sins. He he made a way for for sin to be forgiven. So he made a way for a God who's pure and holy to wash away the sins of those of us who are sinners. That's that's all of us. He, He made a way for that. He died on the cross. He was buried, came back to life, conquering death. You want to know the grace of God, then you must know the grace of God that is found in Christ. That is the only place it's found. Have you turned from your sin and called out to Jesus in faith and said, Jesus, forgive me. I want to follow you. I'm placing my life in your hands. That is the only way that you can know the peace that God brings. It's to be in his grace. It's to know him to have him as your savior. So we've seen first that the gospel transforms by placing you in a faith family. Second, the gospel transforms your purpose in life. The gospel transforms your purpose in life. Look in verse three. Paul says, every time I think about you Philippians, my heart's filled with gratitude. I think of you, church. He says, my heart is so full And he says, I'm I'm always praying for you. This doesn't mean that Paul prays 24 hours a day for the church at Philippi. It means that he's praying for them regularly. And when he prays for them, he prays for them with joy. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine Paul's setting, his situation. He's sitting in prison. And what kinds of words are coming out of his mouth? Thanksgiving, joy, prayer. Look at that. Isn't that amazing to think about? He, he's in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he killed somebody? No, he's in prison because of his faithfulness to the gospel, because of his commitment to preach the word. That's why he's in jail. What would we be doing if we were in prison because of our faithfulness to God? Wouldn't we be complaining? Maybe not you, but I think I would. Wouldn't, wouldn't you be saying to God, come on, I've been faithful to you, and this is prison? This is what I get? 
That's not at all what's happening in Paul's heart. What's happening in Paul's heart? His heart's filled with gratitude. His heart's filled with joy. Why? Because Paul had a purpose. And his purpose... Now, folks, we need to hear this. His purpose wasn't himself. His purpose was God's glory and the gospel spreading. And because his purpose wasn't set on what he wants, but rather on what the Lord wants, he could be in a prison cell and he could rejoice. And friends, you can too. Some of you are in terribly difficult circumstances right now. But if your purpose is that the gospel might spread, that God's glory might be made known, you don't have to sit and fret and sit and complain and sit and become bitter. You too, like Paul, can be filled with thanksgiving and rejoicing and prayers of God, to God for, that are hopeful and encouraging. He, he says, my, my prayers are filled with joy and my heart's filled with thanksgiving because of your partnership with the gospel. You see, the Philippians were committed to make the gospel known. And Paul says, from the first day until now. In other words, from the time that you came to know Jesus until now, your heart has been to make Christ known. And because of that, partnership that we share, that common goal that we share, I am thrilled, yes, filled with joy. And he says, I'm confident in verse 6 that he who began this good work and he's going to carry it on to completion. In other words, he's going to continue to shape you and remake you and, 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 and make your life more and more like him. He's, he's going to do that. He says, I'm confident of it. Why? Because his confidence wasn't as much in the Philippians, wasn't so much in the Philippians. His confidence was in God. God had, had saved them. God had done that great work, and he was sure that God would continue that work until the day of Christ Jesus, until they stand before the Lord Jesus. He would be shaping and remaking them, Paul says. A great verse that reminds us that, that we should always be being changed and, and sanctified. He goes on to say in verse 7 again, your partners in grace. We see that Paul and the Philippians are on the same page, heading in the same direction in Christ and for the spread of the gospel. And he says, you've stood beside me in my imprisonment. They had helped him while he was in prison. They'd given him material support and, and spiritual support. And he says, you've stood by me in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, Paul had stood before government officials and, and others in terms of the legal settings that he had been in, and he had clearly strive to articulate the gospel, to share the gospel, to be a faithful witness. And Paul says here to the Philippians, you've been right beside me in this. You've been right with me. And so in verse 8, he says, God is my witness how much I miss you, how my heart is filled with affection for you. Now, we, we don't need to miss the fact that Paul was a Jew or had been a Jew. And not just a Jew, he had been a Pharisee. This is like the elite Jews. These are the guys that strive to live perfectly. Well, if you were a Jew, particularly a Pharisee, your response to a Gentile, to a non-Jew, was to look down upon them. They, they, were, they were unclean. They weren't God's people. And so, typically, a Jew and a Pharisee would have no desire to have deep fellowship or closeness with a non-Jew, with a Gentile. What do you see here in Paul? Paul has a longing for these people. He loves them. He cares for them deeply. They're a bunch of Gentiles. So here you have this perfect Pharisee passionate about this gang of Gentiles. What does that? It's the gospel. They had a common purpose. And so all of the things that normally divide people, 
Well, those are gone because they're so tiny. They don't even matter. They're, they're obliterated because of the grace of Jesus. Now we have something so much bigger in common, so, something so much more overwhelming that something like being a Jew or a Gentile doesn't make any difference at all. We're partners in the gospel. We're partners in making Christ known. And that's, that's what you see. Paul loved these Gentiles. He loved them. He cared for them deeply because of the purpose of spreading the gospel because God had done this great work, this great work. Now, one of the toys that I think are, are some of the best, you know, some toys, and because of my little kids running around the house, I've got quite a bit of familiarity with toys and grandmas and more and more and all that. But one of the best toys... Uh, are transformers. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. You've had transformers. It's this cool truck you're, you're rolling around and then just a few swift changes. And now it's this sweet action figure, you know, that can take on the bad guys and wipe them out. But you know what? That's exactly what God does with us. He reaches down when we come to know him and he begins to transform us, remake us, reshape us, and he gives us a whole new purpose. We're no longer just a truck. No, we're... We're called on mission with him. We're an action figure in a sense that he can use. That's what God does. He, he transforms. He gives us a new purpose. A new purpose for our lives. So what is your purpose? Friend, what, what are you living for? What is it that, that drives your life? That, that you're pouring your, your time and your heart and your energy into? Are you giving your life to this, the highest of all callings? And I'm not saying that, well, you can't have a job and you can't do anything that's fun, that you need to quit your job and put on a sandwich board that says repent or go to hell. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that in every dimension of life, this desire to make Christ known ought to be primary. So when you're at your work, you don't just go to work and draw a check. You go to work and you strive to be a gospel presence there. You strive to make Christ known there. You strive to live a life of integrity that that adorns the gospel. And then you seek to share Jesus with other people at your work and likely, and and as well, your neighbors and, and family, whoever God places in your life. You are seeking to be intentional about sharing the gospel. That's what God's calling us to. That's what he wants us to be about, making Jesus known. And that is a purpose worthwhile. That's a purpose worth giving your life to. Another question as we think about this passage, are you working together with others for the spread of the gospel? Are you working together with others for the the spread of the gospel? You see, being Christian isn't about sitting in church for an hour a week. No, it's about joining hands with other believers and serving and pouring your life into the furtherance of the gospel. It's about jumping into church and saying, you know what, I'm going to be a part of making this thing happen. I'm going to be a part of seeing the gospel taken out to the folks here in Uvalde and ultimately around the world. Are you allowing the gospel to define your relationships? Clearly, Paul allowed the gospel to define his relationships. Are you? His close connection with with these Gentiles should, should speak to us. It should challenge us. Because of the gospel, we are brought together. Because of the gospel, we can have unity in the church. Why? Because what we have in common is far, far, far more significant than anything that could divide us. So, so when we think generationally in a church, 
There ought to be babies and kiddos and teenagers and young adults and and singles and middle-aged and and older folks and, and seniors. There ought to be all of that. Because in a church, what we have in common isn't necessarily what kind of music we like or this or that. But what we have in common is that we've known the grace of Jesus and we desire passionately to see his name be made known. And that's bigger than all the other stuff. It's huge. It draws the generations together. We, we need not be separate because we uh, are different in age. It draws races and ethnicities together. Does the color of our skin matter? No, God created all of the different peoples of the world. Every person made in his image does Does the world divide over the color of skin? Yes. Do we as believers divide over race or ethnicity? Of course not. No way. That's insane. No, the gospel unites us. Socioeconomically, the church should be filled with those who have plenty and those who have little. Why? Because no person in a community of faith should be treated better than another. Every person's on level ground. Every person's a sinner in need of the grace of God. And so, in the gospel, a unity can exist and ought to exist in the church that is a witness to the world. Has the gospel transformed your relationships? So we've seen that the gospel transforms first by placing you in a gospel community. Second, by changing the direction or the purpose of your life. Third, the gospel transforms you personally. The gospel transforms you personally. Look in verse 9. Paul says, I I pray this. I pray this. Now, he's going to pray that the Philippians continue to grow and mature in their relationship with the Lord. Notice how Paul is so careful in his exhortation of the Philippians. He wants to see them grow. He wants to see them progress in their relationship with Christ. But he... He's given them all of these compliments beforehand. He's told them, I love you, and I've seen God work in you, and we have this partnership in the gospel. So before he ever gently exhorts them, he's shown them love. There's something there for us if we want to help others along in the faith. He says in verse 9, I pray that your love's going to keep on growing. What love is he talking about? He's talking about love for God and love for others. I want you to grow deeper in your love for God. Yes, you love God. But I don't want your love to stagnate. I don't want you to lose your first love. I want your love to continue to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And he also says, I want you to grow in knowledge. In other words, I don't want you to just sort of skate around on the surface when it comes to your understanding of who God is. I want you to dive down deep. I want you to know the words of this book that you might know God more fully. We never need to be satisfied with just sort of a surface understanding of the word of God and who God is. No, we want to learn more. And Paul prayed that for the Philippians. May you know more. May your knowledge grow deeper. And he goes on to say, I'm praying for your discernment that you might be able to prove the things that are superior. So here Paul's not saying that I want you to be able to pick between that which is sinful and not sinful. Of course, that's obvious. But he's saying here, I want you to grow in judgment so that you can understand the difference between what's better and what's best and make decisions that are honoring to God and pleasing to God. You see, decisions ought to be colored more by how would this affect the gospel? 
We ought to be asking that question when we're making decisions. So Paul's saying, I want your judgment to, to, to grow, for you to be able to make good decisions that are honoring to God. He continues on that you may be pure and blameless. That you may be pure. In other words, that, that you wouldn't have any kind of sin in your life tainting you. That, that you would... That you would walk in complete purity. Think about the word blameless. That no one could make any accusation against you. That your life would truly be blameless. Without cause for accusation. No one could say, well, that old fella, he's always got a bad attitude. Or he's a bitter old man. Or, or she's a gossip. No, no one could make any accusation like that. That's what Paul's saying. I want your life to just be above reproach. Blameless. Pure. In our day and time, one's reminded that, that purity is something we really have to fight for, isn't it? Because all around us, there's, there's impurity everywhere. Everywhere you look, if you're not careful, your heart is drawn away from the things that are right and good and true, things that are, that are truly beautiful, that are honoring to God. And so when it comes to purity, we, we need to be really careful. We need to ask questions. What am I allowing into my heart? And then what am I looking at on that screen? What am I reading? What, what am I involving myself in? Paul says, I want you to be pure. Yes, I want you to be blameless. He goes on to say, until the day of Christ. In other words, I want you to become more and more and more and more and more like Jesus so that when you stand before him at judgment, you'll be blameless. You'll have been so transformed, so shaped by him. He, he goes on to say that you might be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What's this mean? Well, a tree that's growing and flourishing, it's going to be filled with fruit. It's going to be filled with leaves. As opposed to a tree that's shrinking away and shriveling up and dying. And Paul says, I want your life to be like the tree that's filled with the fruit of righteousness. And this causes us to think of the fruits of the Spirit. I want your life to be filled with things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those kinds of things. I, I want your life to be filled with that kind of fruit. Are those things increasing in your life? Are you becoming more patient, more gentle? Is your life characterized by greater self-control, by kindness? See, those are the things that ought to be developing if we are growing in him. And it's just the thing that Paul's praying for. Now, notice that Paul closes out here in verse 11 by saying, through Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't think that you have the strength to become these things on your own. These things are only going to appear in your life as you draw close to Jesus. And as you draw close to him in the word and in prayer and seeking to follow him, then the natural fruit is that you might become these things. That's what, that's what Paul's clearly saying. And what's the ultimate goal? It's the glory of God. It's that God might be honored, that he might be praised, that he might be lifted up. Imagine having a, a goal of restoring an old truck, maybe an old 1950 Dodge truck. You go out to the junkyard. You find this old beat-up truck, all rusted you get that truck, and you get all the under-the-hood things dealt with. You get that engine overhauled and, and all of that. And then you take that body, and you begin to, to fill in the, the pings and the dents, and you sand, sand it down and primer it and paint it, and you get the outside of that truck looking sharp, and then you get the interior fixed. And before long, 
This truck has gone from a junker to a jewel. Now, friends, that's exactly what God wants to do in your life. Every one of us are sinners. We're selfish. We, we want to do things our own way. In that sense, we're junkers. We need a lot of work. The best of us still need a lot of work. And what God does is he takes us, if we'll, if we'll draw close to him, and he begins to remake us and to restore us, to change us from a junker to a gem. That, that, that's his goal, and, and that's exactly what he does as we seek him. It's a lifelong process, but day by day by day, through ups and downs, the trajectory of our lives ought to be that we become more and more like Jesus. Again, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but, but we ought to be progressing. We ought to be changing. We ought to be growing in him. So are you progressing in your life spiritually? Are you becoming more like him? Is there evidence of spiritual growth and progress in your life? Well, how do we know? Well, we can look at this text. Is there a deeper love for God in your life? Do the things of God matter to you more now than they used to? Is there a deeper love for people? Do you, do you say, you know what, I can let that go. I, I want to show love. I want to show Christ's likeness. I, I, I want to love people well. Is there maturity in your ability to make decision making? For you, for you to make judgments that are good, that are helpful to other people, that are God-glorifying? Is there greater purity in your life? More and more, you, your, your language, it's pure. You, you're not throwing around filthy language or dirty joking. You know, you're, there's purity there. There's purity in, in the things that you think about. Is that increasing or do you find that instead of becoming more pure, really you're going backwards? Or are you blameless? Is it that you try, strive to live a life that more and more folks could say, you know what? That man, he lives it. That woman, she is the picture of what it means to follow Christ. It's not that we'll be perfect. None of us will be this side of heaven, but that when we do drop the ball, we make it right. We, we ask forgiveness and we move forward. Are the fruits of the Spirit being developed in your life more and more? Are you, like Paul was here, filled with joy, even in the face of hardship? These are evidences of growing uh, in grace and maturity. What stirs your affections? This is another way we can see if we're growing in Christ. What stirs you? What is it that you love that has your heart? For Paul, what did he love? He loved to see Jesus working in people's lives. And he loved to see people driven and passionate about helping others know him. That's what Paul loved, that people might make the gospel known. That's what stirred his heart. What stirs your heart? What is it that grips you and gets you? Is it Jesus? Is it seeing him work in people's lives? Or is it, is it some other pursuit? Something else that, that might be nice and good and not a bad thing at all. But something that surely shouldn't grip your heart. You see, if we're growing in him, our desires are changing. Are you praying for gospel growth in the lives of other believers. Paul clearly is, is passionate about praying for, for these Philippians. Do you pray for other believers? This is evidence of God's growth in your life, that, that, that it weighs on you, that the spiritual condition of, of fellow believers. And so we want to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. I can remember when I was back in high school, I 
took my truck, and I, I don't remember why, but I was driving out in the pasture, and it had rained a ton. This was really dumb. Don't know why I did it, but I got off the road, and it didn't take me five seconds to be high-centered. Every wheel of that truck was sunk. I was high center. I couldn't move. Had to get a tractor, get pulled out and and all that. I couldn't go anywhere, just spinning my wheels. Friends, for you to be high center, it's not God's plan for you. He does not intend for you to be stuck spinning your wheels. As we begin this new year, wouldn't it be right and good for us to say to God, God, I don't want to be stagnant spiritually. I don't want to be stuck spiritually. God, I want you to transform my life. I want to grow in you. I want to know you more. I want to do the things that it's going to take to help me know you. I want to be in the word. I want to be in prayer. I want to pour my life into helping spread the gospel. I want to jump in in a church and and actually be a part. God, I'm I'm committed to this. I, I, I am moving forward by your grace, God, instead of another year of being high center instead of another year of stagnation. Friends, let's grow in him. Let's be changed. Some of you who are here today are not believers. You you do not know the Lord Jesus. You've heard about him. You've been in church some perhaps, but you've never come to know Jesus. There's never been that turning point in your life where you've called out to him and said, God, I got no hope on my own. You save me. I need you. Maybe you've tried self-help. You've you've bought the book and you went through the process. But it still didn't fix. Maybe you've tried alcohol. Maybe you've tried drugs. Maybe you've tried a relationship. You've tried all, all sorts of things. But here's the truth of it. You can't fix yourself. You can't transform yourself. Like a transformer toy that will not change from a truck into an action figure without the hands of a child. Friend, without the hands of God, you will not be changed. You can't do it. You need a God who's holy to reach down and begin to reshape you and to remake you. So the question on the table is this. Will you turn to him? Will you call out to him in faith and say, you know what, God, will you get a hold of my life and change me? I believe in Jesus. I'm asking him to forgive me of my sins, and I want to follow you. Will you do that this morning? Friends, there's no more important decision that could be made here at the dawn of a new year than that you might call out to a God who loves passionately, who sent his son for you, and who will reach down if you call out to him and completely change you and sanctify you. Join me in prayer.